I don't know. I think they would. In the house, when you've got that close, the leader, regardless of what party they're in, in a partisan statement, the leader's responsibility to get that stuff passed. And from a leader's perspective, they need their team to follow along. And when they don't, then they have to have a discussion. But that's what, going back to what I was talking about with secrets, we didn't ever see this happen when we were 51-49 because they would literally ask, does anybody have problems with this? Is everybody okay with it? And there would be one-on-one. And so all those things were ironed out in caucus. So what Dolores described to you didn't ever happen because it was smoothed over and done before we got to the floor. Yeah, I think it would be just the same. It wasn't a gender thing. I don't think it was a gender thing. I agree with you completely because you have people, colleagues, who I refer to as flamethrowers. They've got to get up on the floor and flamethrow. So I would often invite those people in and say, okay, we have to get this bill passed. What is it going to take to get you to shut up? Yeah. And get the guy. This is true. So what has to get done is I have to get this passed. So you can arrange to be absent. You can do what you have to do. But we're going to get this passed. So let's try to do it in a collegial way. It helps nobody if you stand out there on the floor and have a public brawl. Don't do it. I remember one time public funding of education was always an issue. And so there were some of us who represented public schools as well as private schools in our district. And more than once we'd be called in. That cost them about seven or eight of us. And now we have to get two votes out of this bunch. This would come from Abenson. I don't want anybody to leave this room until we've got two votes from you here. You decide who it's going to be and then we'll go from there. So that kind of thing happened. Like you say, behind the scenes to try to make things run smoothly on the floor. Do you think having representation by women in the legislature makes a difference in terms of the policy that gets passed? Yes. I think so. I think we push for certain things. My interest at the time was basically education and mental health issues because I saw it so much in my teaching. And I was just amazed at the lack of information that legislators had at that time. The difference between mental retardation or mental limitation, we would say today, and mental health. There's a difference. Well, what do you mean there's a difference? Well, there's a difference, and I would explain it. So I think that we bring a perspective that males maybe tend to gloss over. A thing that I think I've heard many times is that when women run for office, it's because they want to get something done. And you've heard everybody say that. They want to get something done. Often when men run, it is viewed more as a job. I'm going to have this job, and I'm, it is, let's see or what Or resume building. I've seen exactly. so many young right. guys come in, serve four or six years, and then go on and build on former legislator this, former legislator that. Yeah. But I want to respond directly to your question and say that I think that women are more detail-oriented. I think the guys look at the whole thing and say, well, let's do this. And the women look them square in the eye and say, and how are you going to do that? Mm-hmm. What's the first step? Yeah. And what's the impact? Yes, <laughs> exactly. I think 
that women as a whole, regardless of party, are more interested on how you're going to get it done, where the men are just interested in getting it done and figuring out those details afterwards. And from our perspective, we want to know exactly what it is they're going to do to make it work. So I think that having women at the table forces those big thinkers, shall we call them, to actually come up with a scheme. They say they want to do it, but they don't tell you how because they don't know how. And if we can force them to, and some of them are very creative and come up with fantastic ideas, but only when they're forced into it. And I think that's our role as women many times is to force them to come up with a plan before they move forward because some of them get in yes. high gear and they don't think about all My favorite stuff. question is, what problem are you trying to solve? Yes. Some of them go out and find problems to solve. I've seen it happen so many times. I mean, they sit and read the code so they can figure out, go convince some colleague that they've got a problem. I could name names, but I won't. Well, I definitely think women bring a different perspective to the table. When you think about it, now I was the business manager for our farming operation, did all the books. Also was an educator because I educated my children. I was a mother, so I was a disciplinarian. You bring many hats to the table. And one thing I will say about women, they do their homework. <laughs> Men do not. They don't research anything. They think everything is good. I remember one time we did a bill, and I had read the bill from top to bottom, and it said that we were not going to open up corporate agriculture corporate block and let anyone from any foreign investor come in and buy any amount of land they wanted to buy. That was in the bill, pretty small, but it was there. I came in from the Rotunda, and they were voting. I don't think you were there, so that I could probably listen. But anyway, the speaker said, Marks, how do you vote? I said, I vote no. I'm the only no vote up there. So they all came to my desk, well, why did you vote no against that? All these rural people. I said, do you know what you just did? You just really blew the corporate farming law book. Yes. Oh, about that wasn't in there. I said, did you read the bill? No. Oh, I said, better go back and read it to Senate. So <clears throat> I hightailed it over to the Senate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I said, don't you let this get out of here. What advice would you offer to a woman who's considering running for the legislature today? Do it. I do it first. Do it, do it, do it. We know that people who, women especially, need to be asked several times and but also need to have a very clear picture of what to expect. I would never say do it, do it, do it unless I was ready to stand there and support. Because that's what happened to me. When Donnie and Janet and Julia said, we'll be with you, they were. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I think, yes, I want you to do it, but only if I'm willing to stand there, not behind you, beside you, and help you move it along. But I really believe the answer to that other question is what women bring to the table is so important that I'm willing to dedicate time and energy, even today, to try to recruit women to run. 
And while I, I lean toward a party, I'm not limited to if I think somebody's got something to bring to the table, particularly if she lives in a district where nobody Republicans ever going to get elected there, then let's get somebody good there. Right. Yes. I kind of did not have that support system, and I think it would have been very helpful to have that. Yes. So it's been, and I have, well, the thing I had to do was kind of build trust with, quote, the state party leadership, because I was kind of an unknown. Uh, so they had to, you know, go to Dale Cochran. Is she okay? You know, yes. I was not okay. <laughs> oh, well, apparently I was, because I finally got some support and some education and some training. But there was a lot to learn. You're, there's a lot to learn if, you, if you're kind of out there. Exactly. Right. So I think, you know, be true to yourself. Be, be who you are. Exactly. Be who you are and work hard. Uh, you know, touch base with the party leaders, uh, with the opinionating people in your community. Kind of know where they are so that you can build on that. So, and it's hard work; it takes a lot of time. So, just be willing to do that. But there's a lot of rewards too. I, mean, I think there's a lot of rewards in being a public yeah. servant. The sense of achievement over certain things. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. Right. Well, I would say to young women who are thinking about running for the legislature, get involved on your local level first. Run for school board, run for city council, run for county supervisor, so you have a taste of what you're going to have. Because as a county supervisor, I dealt with the same issues we dealt with the legislature. It was just on a higher scale. So one of the hobbies told me one time, I've never seen a person come in here and take command of the legislature like you have. I said, because I understood it. And I knew what was going to be there. So that would be one of the first things I would tell a woman who's considered my They do need support, there's no doubt about that. I had a lot of support from a lot of people. One of my gals who door knocked with me forever, the last time when I wasn't sure whether I was going to retire or not, she said to me, yes you are, because I'm coming out and burning all your slides, so you ought to retire. <laughs> I think, take it to an even lower level than what Dolores said. And it seems to me, from at least in the southeast part of the state, in the rural areas, I think before anybody, male or female, is going to run, I think they need to be involved in their community. Even before they run for city council or the board of supervisors or the library board or right. the hospital board, That's whatever it is, they need to build these little coalitions. For instance, when I ran, I had Believe it or not, the Little League Coalition. I had a child who was playing Little League. Well, I worked the concession stand, and interestingly enough, all these people from these little towns that were in my district knew my face when I went to the door, to their door, knocking doors, because I had got them their hot dog and their Diet Pepsi in the concession said, well, you look so familiar. Why do you look familiar? I recognize the name Griner, but why do I know you? And I said, well, I've got a kid in Little League. I sat on your bleachers with three kids while they played Little League, and I'm on my last kid now. And Okay, so you've got the Little League Coalition. Then you've got your church coalition. All these different people. Then you've got the music boosters. Well, that's different than the... But you build all these different subgroups, and in rural communities there's all this chatter. I hurt my knee when I was 
campaigning one year campaign on moped but i would go to three or four doors of each town and because they talk 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 some of them thought i canvassed the whole town but back to the subgroup thing you've got it people need to do that the thing that i find interesting and i don't know why it is it seems to be more important if you're running as a republican to have those subgroups as being a democrat and the reason i'm saying that is because you look at the average age of the new people that come in from each party and the democrats seem to be electing younger new people occasionally they have somebody with some with great maturity we call that intelligence shining through <laughs> but they've got young people that are doing good work i don't mean that but it's just that people that tend to be more conservative expect their legislators to have a little more maturity and i think honestly i think they're missing out on something i see some very bright young people in the democrat party that uh, were elected without a lot of probably have to do more work maybe to get to it but i would say i kind of the same boat too and i have children in various things so i have that and i have been very active in the league of Women voters on the state level and our archdiocese and kind of thing and through the, the school board and that sort of thing so i had contacts but probably was one of the younger ones although yeah yeah i probably was I was widely connected with a business community and I had been engaged in helping develop childcare networks and that kind of stuff although I never run for anything or served I never I started as with that Senate campaign but still we we're going to talk about the women's caucus just for a little bit when I was in the healthcare business I entertained the women's caucus at my home a lot because it was an easy and it somehow it was easy to override our differences in issues at that point mm -hmm. because we could focus on something that we agreed on and it was in fact let's get educated about this and i never had a point of view that i was trying to get across but it was important for women to talk to each other at that time and i really enjoyed that whole combination of things elaine zamoniak and i became really close friends as a result of that and if we went to the restroom at the same time in the senate the people got leaders, nervous yeah people they got did nervous. they got real nervous about yeah was there anything they needed to know yeah <laughs> well and to follow up on that is the women's caucus an official body or is it more of an informal structure in the general assembly there's nothing official about it that i know about there might be now i've been gone a long time but during my years in the legislature it was never an official body it was more of a social event that's how it was built however it was all about issues and discussion and then there was a period of time where we met with the women judges the yes. judge and the legislator right huge learning experience because we could freely exchange information about issues about adoption issues and 
court funding issues and domestic violence issues and things that you're careful about how you're going to talk about them. And it's really helpful to have somebody that gives you the straight scoop without... Well, I think you got to know the other person, too. So we worked across the aisle, and I was over with the Senate. You know, we'd go back and forth with issues because we knew the interests of each other. I thought that was helpful. I thought very helpful. I didn't know, but is this still in existence? I don't really know. It was always kind of an informal thing. It was something that I didn't participate in. I was approached several times, but the people that approached me to attend those meetings were the very women that, if there had been a male caucus, they would have been storming. They would literally have been storming the speaker's chair. They would have been ranting and raving and burning their chairs in the well. And I just thought it was pretty hypocritical for them to have a women's caucus and not include the men. Because if the men had one and didn't include them, they would have gone stark raving mad. And so a couple of times I went as a courtesy, but all the time I was there, I felt like a hypocrite. It just was not my thing. I, on the other hand, believe that men did have a caucus. Oh, yes, they did. Oh, yes, they did. Oh, and several of them. And they based and they came back with a solid position on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, the men definitely caucused in different ways. So that was my point. But I caucused too. I caucused at doozies. I caucused at doors and I caucused together at doozies. It was a nonpartisan caucus. It was. But just to say it's women. Now, I could have and comfortably went to ag gatherings in the evening. I went to environment gatherings in the evening. But it was not gender specific. And I just had real serious and still do have real serious issues with gender specific identities. First thing I want to know is are they capable? I don't care what their gender is. And same way with running for office. I think women bring something important to office, but I don't think any woman should ever stand for office based on the fact that she's female. Oh, right. Absolutely. Well, when I was first there, we used to have a freshman caucus. And that was really very helpful. Yes. Now that we can have something to get into. New Democrats, the year I went in, you know, that's a pretty big caucus. And if you decided to, you could kill a lot of business because they wouldn't have enough people to vote for. So that was really very sensitive to me. I mean, it just was very beneficial. Is there a legislator you served with who made a remarkable impression on you and why? Senator Darrell McLaren. He was a guy's guy, but he had the most unusual ability to run at least five separate trains of ideas, concept, and numbers all at the same time and could bounce from one to the other and discuss it in an amazing way. He was absolutely brilliant 
as far as being able to keep things segmented, be having a conversation here, 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 and running a total of his appropriations bill on how much you could spend all at the same time. Point in fact, I was chairing the Ag Appropriations Committee in the House and was getting close to the end of session and we we'll trying to iron some things out. He chaired the Appropriations Committee in the Senate. And I had a couple of things. I was messing with the budget, trying to get everything in, and I was going to fund several things out of off-budget funding, so no, no. which is, I was going to do it anyway. You <laughs> <laughs> might add that I did do it anyway. That's right. That was anyway, I went to him. He, I went looking for him, and he was in what we affectionately refer to as the Senate smoking room, and he was playing bridge with a group of ladies. And I had the con he was also holding a side conversation with somebody that was standing beside him on this side. He was playing his cards and talking to me about, I was explaining to him what I wanted to do, how I was going to do it, and as he was playing cards, conversing with this other guy on another policy matter, he totaled in his brain how many dollars I was saving and the whole business. I mean, I was walked away just totally in awe <laughs> because he, I really struggled with numbers to the point where I write everything down because I fear I'm going to get it wrong. And this guy was running those totals in his head and playing cards and never trumped anybody's ace in the process, I might add. He knew where every card was on that table. And he, to me, was the most amazing mind I ran into all the time I was here. Well, I, in our day, we roomed with each other a lot. So I roomed from time to time with Manette Doder, Johnny Hammond, Sue Mullins, Pat Harper from Waterloo. So they were great minds to listen to them converse and interact and bring up various points. So I learned a lot from them and how they strategized and that sort of thing. So it was just a really a good experience for me to follow them. And then in the bill process and the policy process, I was always impressed with the way Paul Johnson was able to maneuver what was called the REIT program at that time. With the business industry, the ag industry, environmentalists, the whole ball of wax, how he maneuvered all those folks together to get to an agreement on, on an issue on both sides of the house, on both sides of the aisle. I was impressed with that a lot. And then you know, I could just probably go on and on. I thought Ralph Rosenberg did a great job. His, his, his knowledge of background and issues and David Osterberg, who today is still working with a lot of issues and does a lot of policy work. Policy was probably my favorite thing to do. Didn't like campaigning necessarily. Fundraising wasn't any fun. But policy work and interacting and bringing the best out of all the ideas was well, this might seem unusual, but I really respected Ron Corbett, especially when he was chair of appropriations, because I just didn't worry about, I wasn't one that pushed everybody to do something. I worked behind the scenes, I got a lot more done that way. But I always was concerned about my FFA funding, my 4-H funding. And so I'd go and visit with Ron a lot. And I think when he was chair of appropriations of the House, Larry Murphy was chair of the Senate, we got more done and more things done for the state of Iowa than we have in a long time because they worked together and wanted to work together. 
that's the key word, wanted to work to it. But it was kind of funny, after I visited with Ron several times about these, see I didn't want the 4-H funding going to the Department of Education. I fought that, but it went there anyway, but, which I thought was a total, total mistake, because they'd lose it, wasn't long, sure, extension is gone, FFA is gone, 4-H is gone. And so that bothered me, but every time I'd get out of my chair, Ron kind of said, Kitty Corp for me, it's in there, it's in there. <laughs> 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 Well, I already mentioned both Dottie and Carpenter and Janet Metcalf, who were from a campaign standpoint and from a constituent listening standpoint, just, I think, unparalleled. But in, in terms of a real coach and a mentor, it was um, Dick Drake. Oh. Senator <laughs> Dick Drake um, would never <laughs> confront and never the commander. The, you know, I mean, they called him the commander and his long, long service, but he's one of the reasons I don't believe in term limits, because at some point, you've got to have some institutional history you yeah. to, do. to help you along the way. And he would get a cup of coffee and come back to the Senate President's office, and if the staff there saw him coming, they'd say, we're sorry, Mary's busy, and then Dick would come in. And he would say, you wanna watch out for this? I'm hearing this in the lobby, and so-and-so is planning this, you need to know about this. He was such a mentor and a coach to me. I can't value that enough. And I don't suppose either one of us ever thought that was a formal arrangement. He just kind of yeah. it was my yeah. uncle, yeah. the yeah. favorite uncle that had my ear. And we got a lot of stuff done that neither one of us had our fingerprints on. Right. Well, that's the best way. He and I were supposed to be ballerinas in one of the Ozzie games. Oh, but here it comes Dick that night. It was down, down at the Hotel Savory Lobby. I had a little green tutu. Here comes Dick with his pink tights and his little pink tutu. <laughs> I tell you, it was the greatest thing that we, I mean, I, I will never forget oh. it. It was oh. a great performance. We, he didn't even do what they call that. <laughs> I mean, I could do it because I'd had a few lessons, but I knew Dick, yeah. and he did really well. I was yeah. so proud of him. Well, and he, had, and Shirley is, was a musician, as am I. And one of their sons is uh, an opera singer. I mean, a very yeah. successful opera singer, and so we had the, the music things in common mm -hmm. as well. But and that relationship was uh, so, so valuable to me. Yeah, so he was ways. a great guy. Yeah, he was. Really great. Yeah, I listened. One of the best oh, yeah. leadership skills. One of the, when I was first elected to the Senate, I had a former colleague in the House come to me and say, now I just want to tell you about him. He said, he seems like a gruff old guy, but he said, you just smile and be nice to him because, he says, as soon as you get on his good side, he'll have your back the yeah. rest of your life. And that's exactly what was True. going on with you. <laughs> that, I felt that absolutely, completely. So he's, uh, I hope somebody will say that about me, that I, that yeah. helped them through yeah. 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 at the right time was there and was able to listen and 
either say, mm, I can't work with that, or let's get this done. As we bring our conversation to a close, one final question. So moving forward, how do you want your service as a legislator to be remembered? Um, and you kind of touched on that just yeah. now. I want to be remembered as one that had decorum and civility and respect. We had a civil discourse and debate, and I value that because I think it helped things along. When people say, what did you accomplish? As a leader, I think it was more important what I stopped. Yeah, than what I, I always did. said that. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it was more important what I stopped than what I did. But one of the things that I will treasure forever is I passed a bill called the Safe Haven Bill, which yeah. allowed women to take a, a newborn. baby, newborn. a newborn, or it later grew into Safe Haven for children as they were walking in neighborhoods. But every time I see one of those signs, yeah. I think, wow, that's... A, and people said to me, that's just nuts. No woman would ever do that because it allowed a woman to take that infant to a fire station, a nursing home, a police, where they knew the child would be cared for. And every now and then somebody over at DHS tells me, we had number 22 this year. And so I think there are 22 children out there yeah. who are hopefully having good lives and contributing to society. And so it was just a really little thing, but it was the thing that maybe meant the most to me because I just kind of ramrodded that through with very little fanfare. Well, I think hopefully people will remember me as a, a negotiator, an arbitrator, one that could work both sides of the aisle, come to a common consensus to get something done. But I hope they also would remember me as a staunch member of the Agriculture Committee, which I was on for 22 years, served as ranking member for a few, and, and then the chair of the Agriculture Committee in the House for four, the first woman to do that. And I'm not saying that, but I knew, I knew the subject, I knew the committee I was on, and I think that's very, very important. I remember one time the speaker said to me, Doors were getting a little static that you're giving bills to a lot of Republicans. I said, so? Well, why do you want to do that? I said, because I choose the one that has the expertise in that area. Why would I put anybody on that doesn't know that stuff? Go study a chair of a subcommittee? I don't think so. Like I put Sandy, the chair of the Feral oh, Hawks. Yeah, the Feral uh, Hawks. Hawks. And that was really a hot topic. Oh, man, that was but I gave it to Sandy because I knew she understood it and had it in her area. So why would you not do that? So I hope that what I did as a legislator on the Ag Committee all those years, I, I hope it's made some difference today. Thank you. I hope that I'm remembered as someone that had the courage to do what needed to be done and stand firm against their own party when it needed to be done. A couple of instances. One is Senator Hedge and I co-authored the pseudo-rabies bill. That was a disease at the time that was 
just running rampant through the coffee industry. In Iowa, it was costing thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to producers for inoculation to keep them alive. But even when you kept them alive, the hops didn't grow. It took forever for them to get to market. You had all this costly feed and veterinary expense, and you couldn't even get your product to market because the disease was slowing them down. And when we wrote that bill, the Farm Bureau was opposed to it. The Iowa pork producers were opposed to it. Iowa State University was opposed to it because what they thought, what Senator Hedge didn't know what needed to be done. He just knew it needed to happen. The reason he was so into it is because his son had gotten a pot belly, which is the phrase they use for the semis, full of feeder pigs. And three days later, they broke with the disease, and it was bad news. So he knew something needed to happen. He wasn't really into the guts of it like I was. So it was like he'd sit there and mostly we did it together. I did it with his approval. But we did it. I mean, everybody was against it, but it had to happen, and it was very difficult. They sent someone from my home community to Des Moines every day to lobby me against that bill. And I had to say, you know what? It has to happen. It has to happen. And I'm sorry you're unhappy with me, but it's going to happen. And I mean, my neighbors, they sent my closest friends to Des Moines to lobby me. I mean, it was intense and it went on for weeks. It was ugly. But we did it. And then when Iowa was declared pseudo-rabies free, they had a big celebration and they weren't even going to invite me. Patty Judge told them they had to. But they never once acknowledged the work of the legislature that enabled them to do what, what they did, what they did. Second example, and you know what it's going to be, was my efforts on the ethics committee recently. And there again, I've never, ever, ever in my life been lobbied as hard as I was lobbied to take a vote that was contrary to what I felt was the right thing to do. And I took the vote that I thought needed to be taken and something I'll never forget. I hope I'm remembered by the work I did with the Education Committee and the uh, Health and Human Resources Committee. But my constituents at home always remember me as the legislator that got Russian Crick built. And that was quite, quite an adventure. <laughs> Don Avenson, that was one of his, that was the last lake that he was going to get built. That was in my district. And there were many people in, the, in Webster County especially who wanted that lake. And I'm environmentalist, so it was kind of a difficult issue to maneuver. But it was pretty obvious that it was going to happen. And I could either resist it or be a part of what was going to happen and then work to get things done the way I wanted them. And I wanted to be a no-wake lake. Well, voters didn't like that. They wanted it to be, you know, houses all around it. But we did get it to the point where it clearly was something I think is very beneficial to the area now. But it's kind of funny because that isn't what I came to the legislature to do. But it's kind of one of the signals of things you get drawn into when you have to face issues that are going on in your own community. 
But then I think, as you said, then you maneuver it and you work with it until you get it so it's reasonable. Uh, horse people were very opposed to it. I always called them horse people. Maybe that's not very complimentary. But they were interesting folks because they wanted Richard Peake all for themselves. So we had to get to the point where we had to find an additional way to buy additional land so they could at least have some more area there. When you go there now, it's basically a lot of people who enjoy riding their horses. There is a lot of fishing there, very good fishing. So in the end, it really came out to be what we worked to get it to be. So I think it was an example of um, utilizing what the home folks really wanted, but putting it in the context of good environmental issues, good kind of recreational kinds of uh, things that we need in, in Iowa. So that's kind of, I think, I would like to have, be remembered as working to get an issue where it needed to be, compromising and working to have something constructive come out. Isn't that an important point? I mean, in some ways, all of us kind of said that What's important is you look at the issue and think, okay, this is where I want to get ultimately, but I'm willing to take one bite at a time if it is going to take me in the right direction. I don't have to get the whole ball of wax yes. the first month or week, but I can work at it until I, I refer to it That's as the right. Pac-Man theory. That's right. Yeah, it's kind of well, many times folks are angry or upset or don't like, so to speak, lobbyists. But I'll tell you, in this situation, the lobbyists were very helpful because they got all the groups together and we would go to meetings. And I'm not very tall, and the folks who were opposed to me were very tall and they had great big belt buckles, so I always laughed about it. I was looking up. But anyway, I thought they were very helpful in getting all the constituents together. Jim Reardon was opposed to this concept. He was over in the Senate. He wanted everything to be basically for the equestrians. So we had to kind of work with him back and forth, back and forth. We worked for weeks, probably mm -hmm. months, trying to get to the point where most people were satisfied. We got, as, they, as we say, got half a loaf. Actually, I think we probably then really got a whole loaf, but it took a while to get there. Yes. Thank you all so much for your time today, for coming in and sharing these oh. great stories and the wonderful discussion. This was Thank you. Terrific. you didn't ask about the stories. I got a bundle of them. But I don't know if you ever heard about this when we were doing this Rebel Gambling yet. I was the 51st vote for the Rebel Gambling. But there was a caveat to that. If I turned around and voted the other way, we were going to do the gambling bill in the morning. In the afternoon, John Hammond had an amendment that would deplete and not fund the appropriation for my Algona Armory. And I know you have to have the appropriation for both the House and the Senate, or it isn't going to go. Well, I wasn't worried about the Senate. Burroughs was there. He'd take care of that. So Bob Arnold and Big Don Agenson called me back to the Speaker's office, and they both got in front of me, just in my face, like you I said, now listen fellows. My word is my word. I told you I would vote for it, but I'm going to tell you something. If you let Johnny Hammond bring that amendment to the floor and you pass it, something's going to happen around here. Well, Adelson had three knives. He had a big one, a middle-sized one, and a little one because he was such a great hunter. You know. I picked up that middle knife and I said, Mr. Speaker, when my husband and I were first married and could not afford a hired man, I help castrate a lot of hogs, and I know exactly how to do that. I laid that knife down and walked out of his office. <laughs> he, he, yeah, but then when he became a lobbyist, every time I'd come up the stairs, he'd walk there, stay away from that woman. <laughs> <laughs>
I have played bridge. <laughs> we moved to Des Moines in 1976. I played bridge one time since then. It was in the speaker's office downstairs to keep two people interested in the bridge game so the lobby couldn't get to them before we voted. Uh, oh yeah, that, 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 oh yeah. Well, one time, I was doing a bridge game. and Abelson told me I couldn't. So he took me back in the speaker's office and locked me in. I couldn't get out the way. <laughs> he even kept me back there the 10 minutes, so I didn't need to vote on the bill at all. This is going to, today was all the terrorism and everything. It, this, this, I thought about this the other day was I was kind of thinking about all your things. I had a stalker after me when I was here. Oh. And where well, I had never heard of such a thing. A stalker? You know, that was not, that was unheard of in those days. But that was an interesting thing that happened. I don't know. Uh, because I then had to be monitored. I mean, wherever I went for about three days. And I didn't even know who it was. Well, finally, someone pointed out to me who the person was, because they were still here, but I was no longer the, the victim, so to speak. But I thought that was kind of interesting in light of what's going on today. Yeah. yeah. And I know now we have lots of precautions and things yeah. that they can't get in and out, but we didn't yeah. have much in those days. On a final note, I'll tell you a funny story. So I was, it's over the lunch hour. I had lunch down here, and I got ready to go back upstairs, and I went over to the elevator the house to take the house elevator up. Representative Dick Whiteman was the first, there was a group of people waiting to get on the elevator and it became abundantly clear that Whiteman was going to be the only male in the car and the rest of these people were red hat ladies <laughs> and I would say that they were probably, the youngest one was probably 75 and that may be generous. Anyway, we get on the elevator, and I don't know how I got to be clear in the back of the elevator because I wasn't the first one on, but it worked out that I had my back against the wall and Weidman was right next to me. Oh, there was one other person from the chamber on the car. It was Janine Cochran. The rest of them were little red hat ladies. And the car hadn't any more lifted off the ground than white men screamed and grabbed his behind and looked at me and he said, you goosed me. Well, those ladies looked at me and they were just mortified. <laughs> and, was and I said, I didn't touch you. He said, yes, you did. Oh, it was the most horrifying thing I've ever been in my life. And I never was able to get even with him. I always swore I would get even with him. And now he's retired. I'm retired. His son is my grandson's baseball coach. And his grandson has played on the same team and is off to college this year with a baseball scholarship. So I see the Weidmans every once in a while at baseball games because they come to watch their grandchildren. And we always talk about it. It was just absolutely the most mortifying thing <laughs> I've ever been through in my life because I'm sure that I was the talk of the next red hat ladies. <laughs> he had those women convinced that I was touching him. And it was just awful. I mean, I can't tell you how awful it was. <laughs>
but there was nothing I could do. Every time I said, no, I didn't touch him, he said, yes, you did. And by that time, we were level two, and the doors opened, and we all went our separate ways. Janine Cochran said to him afterwards as we walked out, she says, I will never, ever get on an elevator with you as long as I live. <laughs> so she knew that I was innocent, even if the other ladies didn't. <laughs> I was going to tell you, talk about secrets. He married my clerk, Val. Oh, right. So I kind of connected with him. Yeah. He was a great guy. He really was. Yeah. Guy. yeah, I went to serve on the public television board with Brent at the... Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. 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 He's yeah. a great guy. I like Brent. As an outcome, I think, of my legislative work, I am now the chair of the Iowa College Aid Commission. Mm. And so I get still really involved in a lot of work. I come down here pretty often to lobby and stuff. So it's kind of funny how the things that happen after you leave the legislature... I know. ...that you get involved with. So right. It's kind of fun. One of the most interesting things I had was during my last election, I was at a forum in Humboldt, and my opponent was a doctor. And we were sitting at this table answering questions, and the press was there. And he came across, like he was sitting there where you are, Tony, and he said, Dolores, you are too damn old, and you have been there too long, and it's time for you to step back and let some young person, he wasn't much younger than I am, but little bit, not much. And I sat there for a minute and I said, sir, I'm going to use an old adage of President Reagan's. I won't talk about your inexperience if you don't talk about my age. He never did it again, but I tell you, he, it didn't make him any brownie points in Humboldt because that's where it was. And the chair of the Republican Women's came up to me and she said, Dolores, I want to buy you a drink. You didn't deserve that. <laughs> and she said, do you have any signs in your car? And I said, I've got a trunk full. I want them all. I'm having Republican women at my house tomorrow, and my yard is going to be full of her inside. <laughs> so sometimes those things backfire. Oh, yes. 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 they do. Thank you all again, ladies. Well, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Fun to hear your stories. Yeah. Yeah.